It is time for choke points. So the next phase to widen I-5 through JBLM now underway. Drivers can expect three years of lane reductions, traffic shifts, and congestion. Chris is here with the details on that. Just when you thought the construction was over right. on I-5 south of Tacoma, <laughs> here we go again. Uh, we are now in phase three of the widening project of both directions of I-5 uh, from the north end of JBLM down through DuPont. This will allow the Washington Department of Transportation to extend the HOV lanes from where they end now near the main gate at JBLM about a mile to the south to the Stillicum dupont Road. Where that HOV lane starts to end, that's where you start to see the backup. So we'll be looking to get more people into HOV lanes as we extend that HOV lane and also work in improving the interchanges down in the DuPont JBLM area. The North HOV lane will begin at Mounts Road as part of this project. WashDOT's Doug Adamson says Phase 3 will also include a new diverging diamond interchange at the Stillicum DuPont Road. This diverging diamond interchange will help out in terms of moving people more efficiently between uh, the JBLM DuPont gate as well as up into the Stillicum DuPont Road. And uh, Travis, if you don't know what a diverging diamond interchange is. They're like is, your favorite, aren't they? Yes, this is the third one yeah. that's uh, now under construction. These are the ones where you go across the freeway in the opposite direction of traffic to prevent uh, head-on collisions from people turning left in front of you. It really eases the interchanges there, so uh, that'll be nice. And this one will also provide another overpass of I-5 that will take some pressure off uh, Center Drive in DuPont. A lot of work has been going on just outside view, but Adamson says that's all going to change soon. We'll be seeing some pretty significant traffic shifts coming up here after the new year. We really hope uh, folks stay dialed in. People might ask, why not add just a general purpose lane through the area? And you have to remember that WashDOT's goal is moving people, not vehicles. So that's why they're adding HOV lanes. And Adamson says the last extensions of the HOV lanes through JBLM have really helped. We've seen uh, an overall real decrease in congestion and travel times and also the environmental benefits you see from uh, adding HOV lanes where you're moving more people with fewer cars. Now, I drive that corridor a lot, especially on Friday. Fridays in the summer, I-5 really does open up like never before once those HOV lanes pop up. But the southbound I-5 drive isn't great where they end, so this project should help address that. Another issue WashDOT is tackling in this project most drivers probably didn't even realize was a problem. There's an underpass of I-5 connecting JBLM property on either side of the freeway at Pendleton Avenue. Its clearance is only 12 feet 4 inches. Adamson says trucks have hit the underpass four times this year alone. We have nine recorded incidents of overheight vehicles hitting the bridge uh, dating back to 1993. So it's an ongoing issue. The last truck got stuck under that overpass earlier this month. Responders actually had to deflate the tires to get it out of the way. It was that far wedged inside. Reminds it's me of a very busy road in Joint Base Lewis-McCord, even though you really can't see it because it's below Interstate 5. But it's very important as there is a lot of activity that's going on in Joint Base Lewis-McCord throughout the day. Sorry, Sully, I didn't know you had a soundbite to play there, but it reminds me of those notorious overpasses that always get hit, including the, the railroad one in Spokane, Travis. Oh, yeah. That's what I was calling to. Yeah. Yeah, or the, the one in the Arboretum uh, through Seattle. Yes. There's yeah. that old. People just get stuck in those places. I know. It's incredible. And it's clearly that, marked. Yes. Yeah. There's like flashing lights and signs. Yeah. So to fix it is, yeah, obvious to yeah. do that. And so what they're going to do is they're actually going to lower Pendleton Avenue to provide better clearance when it's done. The new height's going to be over 16 feet. So that should be much better. Now, phase three is not the last project to improve I-5 in this area. The following phase, which has yet to be funded, will widen the freeway through Nisqually and build bridges, new ones, over the Nisqually River. Wow. So and will that be the last one, or do we have phase six and seven and eight and nine? Well, I mean, you know, we are talking about Tacoma area construction, after all. Well, technically, you know, by this point, you're you're, you're really in DuPont. I mean, I guess. Uh, but no, so the thing is, is that, uh, you know... I-5 needs to grow yeah. in that area. I mean, we have so many people. I didn't realize it until I started doing the traffic and the text line came online a few years. How many people actually commute Absolutely. from the Olympia area yes. back and forth? Uh, there, are, there are people that are listening now. They're on the road early. So, yeah, and it, it, it needs that. And let's not forget, JBLM grew 
exponentially, you know, after, you know, the war in Iraq and whatnot. And there's so many, it's, it's, it's a huge city if you think about it, but you don't really think about them there. And there are commuting patterns around the base. And one of the, I mean, this is a small, but it is interesting. I read this morning in the Seattle Times that Amtrak is adding two round trip tip trip trips yep. between Seattle and Portland. Yep. And I mean, you know, that's, that is a commute I used to make when we had a station in Portland and I had to go from Seattle to Portland. And I mean, it, you do get slogged down there. So that may take a little bit of the pressure off. Too. Yeah, let's hope so. So yeah, that that's, a, I saw the, that yesterday. So Amtrak is doing that. So that'll definitely give you another option uh, from having to drive down. You can take a nice, easy train uh, down for a weekend or whatever. Yeah, that's a great option. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. The Grand Key Ballet takes the stage at Seattle's Paramount Theater this month in a performance of Snow White that promoters call elegant and mesmerizing. But two of the ballet's principal dancers have their own fascinating story to tell about getting their family out of war-torn Ukraine and keeping their ballet company on its toes. Kyra News Radio's Heather Bosch spoke with them. Queen of Sylvia, what is this? Katerina Kuhar's laughter fills a dance studio where she rehearses for her upcoming performance of the ballet Snow White. Her husband and partner, Alex Doyanov, teasing her about her English. I will learn English. It's not their native language. Both are Ukrainian and dance with the Grand Kiev Ballet, where Stoyanov also serves as artistic director. They now call Seattle home, their path here starting in February of 2022. They were traveling and performing separately before reuniting in France. Uh, February 23, we meet each other in Menton, Menton it's France. Nice. From there, they planned to fly home to their children in Ukraine. But Russia invaded just hours before their flight. Yes, and it was uh, the most uh, terrible uh, day our babysitter call us with the crying. The babysitter caring for their six-and-a-half-year-old daughter Anastasia was frantic. Russia was battling for control of Kiev, where the family lived. Flying out was not an option. And this is terrible because airport is closed. So, so how did you get your daughter? Uh, oh, it's difficult. What followed were urgent phone calls to find a friend who had not yet evacuated who could get their daughter and babysitter out of the country. But time was running out. We, we call another, called another friend. Can you please, they say, you have just 30 minutes. You have 30 minutes. Just, just half an hour to reach that friend who would take them to the border with Poland. They did get there in time, but the roads were jammed with evacuees and danger. So the hours-long journey... Normally it's just six, six, seven hours. It took three days. Meantime, their 13-year-old son, Timur, was in another part of Ukraine where he'd been skiing with family friends. They were fleeing to the border with Hungary, much of the journey on foot. And they walk eight hours to cross and to meet us. Reunited with their children, the family now stays with friends in the Seattle area, where the war is keeping these dancers busier than ever. In Ukraine, my nickname is Crazy Producer. Uh, crazy manager. He explains yeah. the Grand Kiev Ballet Company is now based in Poland, but has several troops around the world helping dancers impacted by war. Because of the war, we like we stay bigger because all people, all dancers say, can you please take us for your company? The artists need you. They need yeah. the work. Yeah. yeah. Does being able to perform provide at least a little bit of an escape? When you're up on stage, does that help in some way? Yes, because art gives us uh, like wings. And uh, of course, for uh, all artists, it's very important to touch your heart. To bring joy, she says, to the audience. And for Stoyanov, there's an added significance here. I created my company, Granky Ballet, in 2014, when Russia first time tried to take our territory. He's from Crimea, which Russia now occupies, with Grand Kiev Ballet not only thriving but expanding. This is our win in our cultural front. They take our house and try to take our country, but... Uh, this is your win in the culture wars. Yeah. When the couple takes the stage at Seattle's Paramount Theater, it will be at once a performance that is elegant, joyful, and a show of strength against those who invaded their native Ukraine. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. The Grand Cave Ballet performs Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs at the Paramount Theater from December 20th to 23rd. We'll check your national headlines next. This is Cairo News Radio. 
Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross along with Colleen O'Brien. It's that time of year where we're all looking for the best gifts for the people we love, our friends and family. And honestly, one of the absolute most personal and beautiful gifts you can get somebody and really, you know, thoughtful about thinking about them as a human is a book, Mm. right? And and the thing is that getting it right is brilliant. Getting it wrong means it never gets read and then it's like, meh. So we called up a guy who does this constantly, day in and day out, because he owns a bookstore, Madison Books in Madison Park. This is James Crossley. And James, your recommendations at your tiny little bookstore in Seattle's Madison Park are amazing. I I love them. They help me. So can you help us? Give us some, just start out with some general recommendations. What are some books that people right now, if they walked into your store, you'd be like, yeah, you should buy that as a gift. Very good question. Well, the most popular book this year, as well as last year, uh, across the board has been Lessons in Chemistry. Ooh, such Bonnie a good Darmus. book. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. What's it about? I haven't she, read uh, it. She, yeah, she lives in uh, England most of the time, but she's actually from here in Seattle. And that book is a phenomenon that just keeps it going and going. And it caught new wind when uh, the streaming TV show based on it started. That's why I've heard the name. And your eyes just about bugged out of your head, Travis, when he said that. You must really love this book. It is one of my favorite books of the last two years. James, give us a synopsis of the book for folks who haven't read it. Well, it's a kind of a period piece set in the uh, early 60s, uh, kind of the Mad Men era. There is a, a brilliant young woman trying to make a career for herself as a chemist and finding it rough going uh, because of the you know rampant misogyny and, and other issues uh, at the time. Um, and she's sort of uh, shunted from her scientific work into a job uh, doing a TV cooking program for housewives. But uh, she turns that to her advantage by using her smarts uh, and refusing to dumb it down for her audience and becomes a, a great sensation with it. Oh, that does sound wonderful. Okay, there's a book I have to get. Now let's go down the age range because I'm looking in the preteen, 10, 11, 12 year old range. I have a really picky reader, somebody who once she finds something she really loves, sticks with that uh, series, and I'm looking to break out from that. So what should I introduce into a 10-year-old's life? Well, a couple things. One, there's a new book by the great Kate DiCamillo called The Puppets of Spellhorst, which is a new thing for her. I think it will, uh, I think it will turn into a series, I imagine. Uh, but right now, there's just the first book. She's famous, uh, Newbery Award winner, I believe, and uh, has been writing for a whole generation, more than one generation of, of young readers. But this new one is uh, is fresh for everyone. And I'll mention also what's very popular for that age group are graphic novels. Mm, um, yeah, yes. There's a, a series called The Witches of Brooklyn, which has appealed to boys and girls here, uh, diverse cast, uh, really entertaining. Let's go even younger. Let's. I have a six-year-old. And, I have a four-year-old. And, yeah, there you go. So let's talk about like picture books or like beginning reader books, things that you know aren't going to make my brain as a parent rot away <laughs> that I'm going to enjoy reading with my kids. Well, for the youngest readers, uh, I have a favorite series of board books. Uh, comes from Harbor Publishing. Um, they're uh, they're created by Roy Henry Vickers and Robert Budd, and they have to do with counting colors sounds you know the basic concepts for you know babies and toddlers um like one book is uh, the counting book is called one eagle soaring and um it features this fantastic northwest art kind of uh indigenous inspired um really vivid colors but also those bold uh blacks and whites that uh that babies really latch on to visually um fantastic gift for uh any very very young reader who's just being introduced to books uh, a slightly older uh, reader would probably appreciate uh, Amos McGee Misses the Bus by Philip Stead and Aaron Stead. Uh, gorgeous art. Um, some of which is some some parts of the story are just transmitted visually. Some of it with great words, and uh, it's it's kind of sophisticated enough that even an adult will appreciate reading it over and over again, <laughs> as we uh, so often have to do. Yeah, so. as we do. Now, giving a book can be um, risky because you might encounter somebody who says, oh, I don't have time to read, or, oh, I don't remember the last time I read a book, or, you know, you, 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 a per- person goes, oh, I've never read this genre before. So for you, you know, what is your advice for a gift giver who wants to give a book? And what do you think giving a book says about that gift giver? I mean, one thing people like to do is give their own favorite books uh, because doing that, tells the recipient something about the giver. Uh, you're, you're making yourself vulnerable, you're revealing yourself uh, in kind of an interesting way. Um, and it's a good way to get to know someone. Um, 
that said, I mean, that works really well if you're, you know, good friends and, and that's, uh, that's the message you want to get across. But that can also be a tiny bit insensitive, I suppose, if you're just <laughs> you know, suiting your own taste and not theirs. So you do want to try to find out what their interests are. And I imagine your employees at the bookstore, if somebody says, hey, I have this person who, and you describe them, they'll be able to lead you to possibly the right book? Absolutely. That's one of the things we do best. Uh, one of the things that you can't match online, you know, algorithms are designed to serve you what someone else thinks you want to want to read. And what we try to do is, you know, find you what you want to read that you didn't know existed. I feel like the the algorithm dumbs me down and you smarten me up. Honestly, that's my experience. I want to ask you about the book business, because honestly, when you opened the store a couple of years ago, I thought, yay, you're in my neighborhood. But also I thought, what are you doing? How are you going to survive and compete against Amazon when it's so easy mm -hmm. for me to just get something shipped to my house? And yet you've been there for several years now and you seem successful. Is business good? Uh, yeah, we're going to turn we're actually going to turn five years old next year in the spring. Um, I mean, we didn't know when we opened that we were going to have this pandemic to deal with, but we, we sailed on through that and uh, come out the other side. Um, it, people always do bring up Amazon, and I kind of wonder why we still talk about that. They're in a completely different business. I mean, yeah, they sell books and a million other things, but as we were just saying, they're not th that's not their primary goal. That's not where they make their money. They do it off their web services and everything else. Their retail doesn't actually earn them much. Um, uh, and uh, like I said, it's designed more for their benefit than for the customer's benefit. The number of independent bookstores has grown every year um, until we hit the pandemic where it kind of flattened, but uh, for the past uh, 12, uh, it's actually a thriving part of the retail sector. And uh, that's a message I don't think enough people know about. People crave community, contact, personalization, all that stuff that we've been providing for decades. Um, and so I think as people turn away from the big box things, um, they, they find places like us still here waiting for them. And here's another secret of this. If somebody wants to order online, they can do that through us. They can do that through their local independent bookstore, wherever they are. We can get all the same books pretty much as quickly uh, as someone else. But, you know, we'll hand it to you with a, with a smile instead of just tossing it cavalierly on your on your porch. Ooh, I love to hear the fire. David and Goliath, who? That's great, James. I'm so happy to hear business is good. Out of curiosity, how many books do you read a year? A lot. <laughs> um, somewhere, depends on the busyness of the year, but uh, somewhere between 100 and 200 books, probably. James Crossley with Madison Books in Madison Park here in Seattle. We appreciate all of your time and your recommendations this morning and appreciate you being in business. Thank you very much. Coming up at 635, our resident historian Felix Bennell will be stopping by with another edition of All Over the Map. But right now, let's head to that conversation we've been talking about here that we had earlier with Margaret Brennan, moderator of CBS's Face the Nation. We started by talking about the war in Gaza. Fighting there has resumed, as you heard in the newscast, after a brief halt for the return of hostages. So we asked Margaret about the details there. Well, this short-term cessation of violence that was intended for the hostage swap to happen was without flaw. You know, it was difficult, but it happened. And the IDF made clear they were going to resume military operations, they said, uh, when the hostages had been released. We've seen the women and children come out. There was some indication it could be extended. Hamas claims Israel turned down an offer to receive hostages. Israel claims Hamas wasn't honest about who it is that they still have in captivity. But long story short, uh, combat operations have been resumed. Meanwhile, diplomats from the United States, from Qatar, are still trying to get some uh, hostages released through a phase two form of those uh, negotiations that would even potentially free men being held uh, by Hamas, uh, including some soldiers. So uh, they're not giving up on that. But in the meantime, uh, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, was in Israel yesterday and has made clear that they are pressing on the part of the Biden administration, Israeli leaders to uh, be extremely cautious in these combat operations they're launching in the south of the country. Uh, Gaza is where, South Gaza, I should say, is where civilians were told to flee to be safe. And it is going to be extremely difficult to avoid civilian casualties. And we've already seen a very large number of them in operations in the north of Gaza. So the Biden administration pressing for that to be scaled back. 
On the question of hostages, do we know how many hostages remain at this moment? That seems to be a question um, that a lot of folks are asking. Well, we know the estimates are are well over 100. The issue has been throughout this that it is not it, it is not exact. It has always been an estimate in terms of understanding how many people who are unaccounted for are actually being held in captivity by Hamas or other militant groups like Islamic Jihad, even some criminal organizations the United States has assessed uh, are involved here. Smugglers, for example, people who just grabbed um, Israeli civilians when that barrier was broken and for five hours or more, uh, Hamas and, and these militants were allowed to run roughshod uh, over Israel because their military just didn't respond. And those intelligence failures on the part of uh, Israel are being really harshly scrutinized and will continue to be. Um, that's what uh, got us to, to this place, Hamas's really brutal planning that apparently, according to the New York Times, uh, Israeli intelligence did have advanced warning of but didn't believe was possible. So uh, there is just so much uh, scrutiny of what led us to where we are. And in the meantime, well over 100 hostages are believed to be held. Uh, but that's one of the issues being negotiated right now. Are bodies of hostages going to be turned over? In other words, are they negotiating for people who are no longer living, uh, cannot be verified? Who is still held at this point versus who has perhaps just been uh, left behind or unintentionally killed in the Israeli bombing and operations in Gaza today? All of this is extremely complex for the diplomats trying to negotiate the return of these individuals. We're talking with CBS's Margaret Brennan, heading from the war in the East back home, where the big news is the expulsion vote for New York Republican Congressman George Santos. Another vote is set for today, but Santos himself does not want to go quietly. Well, George Santos has done a number of interviews saying that he does expect to be expelled. He's not quitting. Um, he has decided he won't run for re-election. But today we will see what his colleagues believe can be tolerated. Um, and that's really the way that uh, we're talking about it here is, is, is this a benchmark vote for whether uh, lawmakers will accept uh, conduct that includes uh, what is laid out in that ethics committee investigation that was made public detailing uh, alleged violations of federal law and use of campaign funds, taking donor money and using it for Botox and trips to Vegas rather than how the donors intended it for it to be used. So what what is it that lawmakers will accept in terms of uh, behavior on the part of their colleagues and what is too much? What crosses the line? What's what we've seen so far is to get to that two thirds majority of those present is a high bar. But more and more Republican colleagues are saying this is too much when they have read through the uh, report that was released uh, a little over a week ago. I think I remarked to you, Travis, that I'm surprised, Margaret, it took this long for Congress to vote to expel Santos. Why do you think it took this long? Well, uh, there have been some efforts that just were unsuccessful. Um, and part of this has to do with, some would argue, uh, the need for some due process. Well, now he's had that. This investigation's happened. This report has been made public uh, by, you know, his peers. But but also we know that it was a, a political calculation for Republicans who face a very slim majority already and losing a Republican vote uh, would make that even slimmer. Margaret, we appreciate your time this morning, this Sunday. Her guests include 2024 GOP presidential candidate Chris Christie. That Sunday face the nation on CBS. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Always great talking with Margaret. Her show on Sunday, uh, excellent, in, including Chris Christie, as I said, and a few other guests. Uh, she does a great job interviewing them. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington, an evergreen playground blessed by an unusual variety of natural attractions. Our the resident historian, mountain, Felix Bennell, joining us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. A quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, the Christmas Lighted Boat Parade, which began back in the 1960s, will ply the waters of the mighty Columbia River between Kennewick and Richland tonight and Saturday. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, you know, afternoon darkness. Uh, let's see. Unrelenting precipitation, cold temperatures. Yes, that's Christmas light season officially here around the Pacific Northwest. Now, along with those conditions, what else do we have a lot of here? Uh, boats and water. Um, so in Seattle, the Argosy Christmas ship is sailing every weekend between now and Christmas. 
all around Elliott Bay and Lake Washington. That dates back to the 1940s. But they do have a similar tradition east of the mountains, too. It dates back to 1964. It's called the Christmas Lighted Boat Parade. A flotilla of decorated and illuminated boats will leave Clover Island in Kennewick at 6.30 p.m. tonight. They'll head up river eight miles to Howard Amon Park in Richland. Then at about 7.30, they'll turn around and head back. And as they leave, a big fireworks show begins in Amon Park, which is pretty cool. And that's both tonight and Saturday. So there's still time to get over there and get a good spot. Uh, people line the banks of the Columbia all along the route. Uh, the Columbia Park in Kennewick, Amon Park in Richland, where they have bonfires and stuff. There's a trail that runs along the river all along the route as well. Any Riverside restaurant gets packed for this event. It's a big deal over in the Tri-Cities. Now, Mike Rhodes is in his 50s. This is his second year as Clover Island Yacht Club's lighted parade coordinator. I talked to him yesterday, just hours before the mandatory skippers meeting, for the 30 or so decorated boats that take part and that compete for the best decorated prize. One of them last year, one of the one, did a um, Christmas vacation with the station wagon. Then we got a guy towing a dinghy with the, the lamp leg from a Christmas story, and yeah, he got pretty creative. You know, and the Christmas lighted boat parade takes place rain or shine. I guess it's not really shine, though. The Coast Guard and the Sheriff's Office help out with a yacht club with logistics. It's only been canceled once in the past because of high winds, and it did keep going all throughout the pandemic, which is pretty amazing. Now, it can be cold in the Tri-Cities this time of year. Mike Rhodes said there were occasions in the past when there's been snow or freezing rain, and it was a balmy 19 degrees Fahrenheit, or that's minus 7 Celsius for our Canadian listeners, uh, for last year's Saturday night parade. Now, as coordinator, Mike is smart. He leads the parade from the cozy comfort of his 34-foot Sea Ray sport cruiser. But he says there's usually a wide variety of other kinds of boats taking part. We have bigger trolley-type boats, um, a lot of sport cruisers. We even have some people out there in a pontoon boat freezing their butts off. (laughs) So I checked. It's going to be 32 degrees at cruise time tonight, a little bit warmer tomorrow night. Um, And it's tonight and tomorrow on the Columbia River between Kennewick and Richland. uh, Mike says bring a flashlight. People along the shore flash their flashlights on and off to sort of uh, vote, uh, kind of show their approval of the boats going by. So it's it's a pretty cool community thing. Now, if you're more of a dry land parade enthusiast, this is a huge weekend for lighted parades east of the mountains. Uh, Sela's tonight at 6 p.m. Sunnyside's lighted farm implement parade tomorrow night at 6.30. Cleallum has a parade at 6 p.m. tomorrow. A big one in Yakima, Sunday at 6 p.m. And, of course, if you're on this side of the mountains, next Saturday, December 9th, that's the big lighted tractor parade in Centralia. I mean, it's, it's lighted everything season here in the great Northwest, and what a nice an- antidote to the darkness and the cold and the wet. So. Absolutely. Lighted farm implement Yeah, parade? it's a big deal. It's been going on for decades over there in Sunnyside. I always, I always wonder about driving over there. I always debate, like, God, should I get in the car and drive over for that? Why don't you that? do so, it? Yeah. Well, you know, there's, a, what, the Husky game tonight? There's, uh, what, the, the 1975 play tomorrow night? Either. The Huskies play weekly, right? These lights only exist one time We need to get the Cairo news jet back and fly me over to Sunnyside so I can cover it and come back and bring footage and audio and everything. morning news road trip, perhaps? That'd be great. Let's go. Who's got an RV, a big RV that the winds in the past can kind of blow off the road? I can fit seven in my Subaru Ascent from Carter Subaru. Uh, and there we go. Lights on the Subaru too. <laughs> You're welcome, Carter. Shameless. <laughs> it is 6:39. Let's get. This is Seattle's morning news. I'm Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross. The Grand Kiev Ballet takes the stage at Seattle's Paramount Theater this month in a performance of Snow White that promoters call elegant and mesmerizing. But two of the ballet's principal dancers have their own fascinating backstory to tell as well about getting their family out of war-torn Ukraine and keeping their ballet company on its toes. Cairo News Radio's Heather Bosch spoke with them. Queen of Sylvia, what is this? Katerina Kuhar's laughter fills a dance studio where she rehearses for her upcoming performance of the ballet Snow White. Her husband and partner, Alex Stoyanov, teasing her about her English. I will learn English. It's not their native language. Both are Ukrainian and dance with the Grand Kiev Ballet, where Stoyanov also serves as artistic director. They now call Seattle home, their path here starting in February of 2022. They were traveling and performing separately before reuniting in France. Uh, February 23, we meet each other in Menton, Nice. From there, they plan to fly home to their children in Ukraine. But Russia invaded just hours before their flight. Yes, and it was uh, the most uh, terrible uh, day our babysitter call us with the crying. The babysitter caring for their six-and-a-half-year-old daughter Anastasia was frantic. Russia was battling for control of Kiev, where the family lived. Flying out was not an option. And this is terrible because airport is closed. So so how did you get your daughter? 
Oh, oh it's difficult. What followed were urgent phone calls to find a friend who had not yet evacuated who could get their daughter and babysitter out of the country. But time was running out. We, we call another, called another friend. Can you please, they say, you have just 30 minutes, you have 30 minutes, just... Just half an hour to reach that friend who would take them to the border with Poland. They did get there in time, but the roads were jammed with evacuees and danger. So the hours-long journey... Normally it's just six, six, seven hours. It took three days. Meantime, their 13-year-old son, Timur, was in another part of Ukraine where he'd been skiing with family friends. They were fleeing to the border with Hungary, much of the journey on foot. And they walk eight hours to cross and to meet us. Reunited with their children, the family now stays with friends in the Seattle area, where the war is keeping these dancers busier than ever. In Ukraine, my nickname is Crazy Producer. Crazy manager. He explains yeah. the Grand Key Ballet Company is now based in Poland, but has several troops around the world helping dancers impacted by war. Because of the war, we like we stay bigger. Because all people, all dancers say, "Can you please take us for your company?" The artists need you. They need yeah. the work. Yeah. Yeah. Does being able to perform provide at least a little bit of an escape? When you're up on stage, does that help in some way? Yes, because art gives us uh, like wings. And uh, of course, for uh, all artists, very important to touch your heart. To bring joy, she says, to the audience. And for Stoyanov, there's an added significance here. I created my company, Grand Key Ballet, in 2014, when Russia first time tried to take our territory. He's from Crimea, which Russia now occupies, with Grand Kiev Ballet not only thriving but expanding. This is our win in our cultural front. They take our house and try to take our country, but... Uh, this is your win in the culture wars. Yeah. When the couple takes the stage at Seattle's Paramount Theater, it will be at once a performance that is elegant, joyful, and a show of strength against those who invaded their native Ukraine. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. The Grand Kiev Ballet performs Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs at the Paramount Theater from December 20th to the 23rd. Coming up at 7:35 in today's commentary, I ask you to picture this number. I want you I, I really want you to do this. A 1 and 30 zeros mm. no that is not your commute time from wherever you're headed but it is an important number and it has something to do with you and what you can do in your life we'll talk about it at 7:35. but right now let's talk about holiday shopping it's a topic we talk about a lot this time of year i always need gift ideas one of the best things to give folks is books and if you're like oh, but i don't know i don't know how but a good book can be the perfect gift if you give it a little bit of thought the wrong book can fall flat. So we called up an expert on books, the owner of Madison Books, James Crossley. We began by asking James what books he would recommend for anyone coming into his store. Well, the most popular book this year, as well as last year, uh, across the board, has been Lessons in Chemistry. Ooh, such Bonnie a good Darmus. book. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. What's it about? I haven't she, read uh, it. She, yeah, she lives in uh, England most of the time, but she's actually from here in Seattle. And that book is a phenomenon that just keeps it going and going. And it caught new wind when uh, the streaming TV show based on it started. That's why I've heard the name. And your eyes just about bugged out of your head, Travis, when he said that. You must really love this book. It is one of my favorite books of the last two years. James, give us a synopsis of the book for folks who haven't read it. Well, it's a kind of a period piece set in the uh, early 60s, uh, kind of the Mad Men era. There is a, a brilliant young woman trying to make a career for herself as a chemist and finding it rough going uh, because of the you know, rampant misogyny and, and other issues uh, at the time. Um, and she's sort of uh, shunted from her scientific work into a job uh, doing a TV cooking program for housewives. But uh, she turns that to her advantage by using her smarts uh, and refusing to dumb it down for her audience and becomes a, a great sensation with it. Oh, that does sound wonderful. Okay, there's a book I have to get. Now let's go down the age range because I'm looking in the preteen, 10, 11, 12-year-old range. I have a really picky reader, somebody who once she finds something she really loves, sticks with that uh, series, and I'm looking to break out from that. So what should I introduce into a 10-year-old's life? Well, a couple things. One, there's a new book by the great Kate DiCamillo, 
it's called the Puppets of Spellhorst, which is a new thing for her. I think it will, uh, I think it will turn into a series, I imagine. Uh, but right now there's just the first book. She's famous, uh, Newbery Award winner, I believe, and uh, has been writing for a whole generation, more than one generation of, of young readers. But this new one is, uh, is fresh for everyone. And I'll mention also what's very popular for that age group are graphic novels. Mm, um, yeah, yes. There's a, a series called The Witches of Brooklyn, which has appealed to boys and girls here, uh, diverse cast, uh, really entertaining. Let's go even younger. Let's. I have a six-year-old. And, I have a four-year-old. Yeah, there you go. So let's talk about like picture books or like beginning reader books, things that you know aren't going to make my brain as a parent rot away <laughs> that I'm going to enjoy reading with my kids. Well, for the youngest readers, uh, I have a favorite series of board books. Uh, comes from Harbor Publishing. Um, they're uh, they're created by Roy Henry Vickers and Robert Budd, and they have to do with counting colors sounds you know the basic concepts for you know babies and toddlers um like one book is uh, the counting book is called one eagle soaring and um it features this fantastic northwest art kind of uh indigenous inspired um really vivid colors but also those bold uh blacks and whites that uh that babies really latch on to visually um fantastic gift for uh any very very young reader who's just being introduced to books uh, a slightly older uh, reader would probably appreciate uh, Amos McGee Misses the Bus by Philip Stead and Aaron Stead. Uh, gorgeous art. Um, some of which is some some parts of the story are just transmitted visually. Some of it with great words, and uh, it's it's kind of sophisticated enough that even an adult will appreciate reading it over and over again, <laughs> as we uh, so often have to do. Yeah, so as we do. Now, giving a book can be um, risky because you might encounter somebody who says, oh, I don't have time to read or, oh, I don't remember the last time I read a book or, you know, you, 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 a per person goes, oh, I've never read this genre before. So for you, you know, what is your advice for a gift giver who wants to give a book? And what do you think giving a book says about that gift giver? I mean, one thing people like to do is give their own favorite books uh, because doing that tells the recipient something about the giver. Uh, you're, you're making yourself vulnerable, you're revealing yourself uh, in kind of an interesting way. Um, and it's a good way to get to know someone. Um, that said, I mean, that works really well if you're you know, good friends and, and that's, uh, that's the message you wanna get across, but that can also be a tiny bit insensitive, I suppose, if you're just <laughs> you know, suiting your own taste and not theirs. So you do wanna try to find out what their interests are. And I imagine your employees at the bookstore, if somebody says, hey, I have this person who, and you describe them, they'll be able to lead you to possibly the right book? Absolutely. That's one of the things we do best. Uh, one of the things that you can't match online, you know, algorithms are designed to serve you what someone else thinks you want to want to read. And what we try to do is, you know, find you what you want to read that you didn't know existed. I feel like the the algorithm dumbs me down and you smarten me up. Honestly, that's my experience. I want to ask you about the book business, because honestly, when you opened the store a couple of years ago, I thought, yay, you're in my neighborhood. But also I thought, what are you doing? How are you going to survive and compete against Amazon when it's so easy mm -hmm. for me to just get something shipped to my house? And yet you've been there for several years now and you seem successful. Is business good? Uh, yeah, we're going to turn we're actually going to turn five years old next year in the spring. Um, I mean, we didn't know when we opened that we were going to have this pandemic to deal with, but we, we sailed on through that and uh, come out the other side. Um, it, people always do bring up Amazon, and I kind of wonder why we still talk about that. They're in a completely different business. I mean, yeah, they sell books and a million other things, but as we were just saying, they're not th that's not their primary goal. That's not where they make their money. They do it off their web services and everything else. Their retail doesn't actually earn them much. Um, uh, and uh, like I said, it's designed more for their benefit than for the customer's benefit. The number of independent bookstores has grown every year um, until we hit the pandemic where kind of flattened, but uh, for the past uh, 12, uh, it's actually a thriving part of the retail sector. And uh, that's a message I don't think enough people know about. People crave community, contact, personalization, all that stuff that we've been providing for decades. Um, and so I think as people turn away from the big box things, um, they, they find places like us still here waiting for them. That is James Crossley, owner of Madison Books in Seattle's Madison Park neighborhood.
Beautiful, Travis. Thank you. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Support has been pouring in for a child in Iowa caught on doorbell camera doing a good deed. Laura Terrell with CBS affiliate KCCI-TV has the story. It's the ring camera now seen by thousands. Waukee sixth graders Liam Ireland and Avi Curtis pour their candy into an empty bucket on beggars night and notify the homeowner after they saw someone take the candy minutes before. We gave you more candy because they took your candy. The two boys just keep on giving, passing along candy and toys they receive to this family with young kids. Are you sure you want to give him this? Their act of kindness went viral, but it's Liam's emotional interview that shocked us all. Why was that important to you? Because, like, back in December, I had lost my brother, and that was hard for me. So I just decided to do the right thing because there's more nice people in this world than you think there is. Liam's mom had no idea he was going to share this profound loss with the world. The two brothers were extremely close. Liam says it was Irvani who taught him to be kind. He'd do like anything for me, so I do more. I give or I show other people kindness. We were just talking this morning, Travis, about how kids just know. Yeah, They know the right thing to do. We were talking about uh, how my four-year-old had seen tents. And for the first time looking out the window, she said, Mom, what are those? And we had a discussion about homelessness. And she was like, well, they should have a house. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like... As basic as that. Yeah, yeah, it is that simple. And, and kids always show us the way, especially when it comes to kindness. So that's why I love sharing these stories. And um, while the story was playing, you said, what's beggar's night? And yeah, I should have clarified in the beginning. So it's a regional term for the uh, practice of trick-or-treating. Oh, okay. and, it, and it's an Iowa thing. Oh, interesting. They call it beggar's Now to Ursula, Ursula Royteen joining us this morning from the G and Ursula show. So happy to have you here. Good morning. Although I just feel a tinge of sadness about triple X root beer. Oh, no. yeah. right. Have I never had, had to try it. Bur- oh my gosh. I heard they're I mean, the size of, those... of a dinner plate. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that you should share. Yes. Yes. I mean, you you could eat it for days. Yeah. And our friend Rachel Bell, she was on Instagram talking about this, saying it's one of the best milkshakes. She always it, comes back from a hike in the Cascades and gets a milkshake yeah. there because it's so filling and yummy. Excellent milkshakes, mm. for sure. Yeah. So well, we're talking about something else sad. At least you think this is really sad. The voter turnout in yeah. this general election. Now, granted, it was a non-presidential year. Yes. And that's what a lot of political experts are saying. Well, it's a you know non-presidential but year. But still. But when you're talking about 66% of people in King County sitting out and saying, you know what, I don't even, I'm not even going to bother, 66% of registered voters. To me, as someone who at one point in time was not able to vote living here in the United mm. States because I hadn't become an American citizen yet, just the idea that someone wouldn't think that their voice counts or that they wouldn't want to participate. And so on our show, this week, we asked people, like, what is it? To me, I just find it really disturbing and sad and that people just think eh, it doesn't yeah. matter anyway, because yeah. that's what we kept hearing. Well, why do you think it doesn't matter? And uh, a number of voters said, I sat it out because whatever I say may not look at $30 car tabs. Uh, we can vote one way. And even though we want this. Uh, the lawmakers are going to do something else anyway. So is it a loss of faith in lawmakers? That, that's yes. where I was headed in my brain as you were, were saying that, because we also see that on the federal level as well, Yes, where we send our representatives there for a certain reason, because they promise us certain things on the campaign trail. And then what we see play out in Congress is just infighting and tribalism and, and lobby interests. Exactly. And so I almost get it, even though I don't want it to be true. Exactly. And so, you know, even on a text line, I mean, I was desperately trying to get people. One person told me I'm 58 years old, which is my age. And she said, I've never voted. What? And so I said, can I please, I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but can I just help you make 2024 the first year that you actually vote? And she said she would think about it. <laughs> so is this a new G and Ursula campaign, a new G and Ursula, uh, you guys are going to get voter turnout up like Taylor Swift? 
Well, don't I'm not going to even use Taylor Swift as as well, much you're as I Seattle's love Taylor, Taylor Swift. I know, yeah. As much as I love Taylor Swift, because that's automatically going to th- make people think that I'm, t- you know, she's she oh, does she's tell people how to vote. exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. And, but but uh, the other thing that came up over and over again is this feeling of hey, we're a one party state. We've been a one party state. It really doesn't matter. And whatever happens in King County happens everywhere. Not true. So exactly. many blue counties and cities have turned red. We just talked about it this week, Travis. Yeah, that's exactly right. Or look at the city council. Uh, 10 years of being super progressive here in Seattle. And I mean, I know that they all claim they're Democrats, but they have definitely, this new council is going to be much more conservative, much more uh, middle of the road, pragmatic centrist. And those elections were decided by like less than 500 votes. So like that is an example where uh, each vote matters. Exactly. It takes time, In my actual district, in in the Seattle City Council uh, district that I live in, the votes spread was like 235 yeah. votes. Yep. It could be, too, that we are getting, you know, obviously it's multiple things. All right, we're not going to solve it today no. in this three-minute conversation. But I was thinking uh, it, it takes 10 years to, to flip the Seattle City Council. We're so used to instant gratification, instant opinions, instant rewards, instant likes, instant that taking 10 years to change a political field, maybe we don't, we're not used to waiting anymore. We're not patient. Well, one of the reasons why it took so long is because, again, historically low turnouts. This particular one, though, was the lowest in, since record, you know, we've been recording voter turnout in King County. Yeah. But all the off-year elections are low turnout anyway. And I just, I guess... You know, we've talked about should you make it a holiday? Should you? Yes. There, there you go. I, I'm not even convinced that we should make it a holiday because we're making it so easy as it stands anyway. But I think that with the free, you know, yeah, now you don't the even have to with the postage, postage, with, all exactly. of that. But I think voting should be a ho- it should be an event in America if it is special and, and it should be a holiday. It's you know a shame what? And it's I not. could probably could be convinced that, yeah, yeah. sure, if that's going to if that's going to mean that we're going to actually see turnout over 50 percent, I would love it. Yeah. Well, we can keep trying. Yes. Keep going, Ursula. I love your optimism. <laughs> that's why we love Ursula. Absolutely. She's our sunshine. I love you guys. Happy Friday. <laughs> Happy Friday. We will tune in starting at 9 a.m. this morning. The G and Ursula show. Ursula, thank you. Thank you, Ted. 8.15 now on Seattle's Morning News. I'm Colleen O'Brien. Travis Mayfield is here. We'll get your local news updates from Tom Hutler, Coming up at 8.30. Fighting has resumed today between Israel and Hamas as day eight of the truce expired. It has been a bloody two months since the initial Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th, with tens of thousands killed in the fighting. Not only that, but fierce divides over how Israel responded to the bloody attack. And our Cairo News Radio reporter James Lynch was given an invitation by the Israeli government to view video uncensored of the Hamas attack on October 7th. And James, as you can hear, joins us now. James, you viewed that video yesterday. Can you walk us through where you went? You walk into that room in preparation for the video. Uh, Set the scene for us. Uh, It was held uh, yesterday morning about 9.30 at the Jewish Federation of Seattle um, uh, at their location in in the Central District there. Um, We came in, we were told in advance that we could bring no electronics with us. no cell phone, no laptop, no iPads. I left all of that in my car, but I didn't uh, take off my my Apple Watch. And that was one thing as soon as they saw it, they said, okay, you're going to have to leave the Apple Watch uh, at the front desk as you go in. I did that. There were forms and releases to fill out, uh, privacy forms, uh, forms that said that I understood that there was a no electronic policy. Uh, after we did all that, we, we proceeded upstairs uh, to a viewing room with a with a huge pull-down screen. Uh, there was about 12 of us uh, journalists in there at the time. Uh, and I, how were I, you feeling leading up to this? Because it's, you know, for, for transparency for our listeners, this is live, you know, you're watching murder uh, on video. And, and we had a lot of discussion in the newsroom about the value of seeing something like this. Why is the Israeli government interviewing? So what is your... What is your feeling ahead of this video? 
Well, I, I knew that it was it was going to be horrific. You and I certainly had conversations in the newsroom about it, uh, as I did with other people in the newsrooms who were asking, why do you why do you want to see it? Are you going to be OK? Do you think that that you can watch this video and then just continue on with your life? And as you said, it is watching murder. And I've seen murder before. I've been in the news business for 40 years. Uh, but this was worse than that. Um, this was not just uh, them walking in, shooting somebody and walking out. This was much, much worse. Um, they, they walked in, they pulled guns, they shot. Uh, when their victims fell, you could hear them on the tape saying, shoot them again, shoot them again. So they would shoot the victims again and again just to, to make sure that they were dead. Uh, the, the other thing is, is decapitations. Uh, there were people who were shot in the face, people shot in the back as they tried to run away. I mean, it was just a, a horrific, vicious piece of video to watch. Uh, but, you know, when Charlie Harger asked me to do it, I, I thought about it for a split second and I said it's my journalistic responsibility. And Charlie, to do for that. those listening, is, is our news director. Exactly. And and um, uh, I felt that it was my responsibility to do it. He made it very clear that if you don't want to, if you don't think you can, you don't have to. And, and I told him that uh, I, I felt as journalists we had a responsibility to watch the video. Uh, and so that's what I did. James, can you kind of help our listeners understand why the Israeli government is showing reporters these really horrific scenes? Well, I think the, the biggest reason for that, and, and these videos have, have toured the country. Uh, members of Congress has, have seen them. Uh, senators have seen them. Ambassadors have seen them. But I think that they, they noticed uh, several weeks back a wave of denialism that started to, to move across the globe, really, here in the United States and the rest of the world, that people didn't believe that the attack happened. They believed that the Israeli government made it up. So they wanted to, to issue this footage so that journalists and, and other uh, elected officials could watch it so we could bear testament that it really did happen. Uh, otherwise, you, you'll have that denialism spread, and that's something that they wanted to try to avoid, so they released the video. And not just denialism that the attack by Hamas happened, but also justification for Israelis' response. Was there any talk of that in the room yesterday? No, it, it was it was not a, a, a political discussion. It was a, a here, come, see this video. If you have questions, want to talk about it, then we can do that. But that was that was it. The political um, and, and all of the, the other uh, elements of the conflict is something that we didn't bring in. It was strictly about the video that they wanted us to see uh, and so that we could tell the, the rest of, of Washington state about it. But they say that there are actually ongoing talks at this time to release the video mo more broadly uh, to the public. Uh, we didn't get an indication of when that might happen, how it might happen, but those talks are certainly underway. James, I, I, you, when you and I were talking in advance of doing this, you were thinking, well, you know, I can talk to the other witnesses after it's over. Did you get a sense of how folks were leaving this event? You've kind of talked about how you left the event and how, how you were feeling. What, what was the mood as folks were leaving after seeing this? What, what about 45 minutes of video? Yeah, 45 minutes of video. And let me back up a little bit, because during the video, there were quite a few people uh, that were crying in the room. There were quite a few people that that I saw turn away quickly because they they knew what was about to happen and they didn't want to see it. And they turned away. So, I mean, it was, you know, it, it was emotional, to say the least. Um, it, it was very moving. Uh, somebody yesterday said that it, it, it'll scar you, and I believe that's true. I don't believe that it is something that any of us will ever forget uh, what we saw. We'll just have to find a place to compartmentalize those images and then move on with our lives. And you talk about, you know, perhaps that video being released to a wider audience. And, you know, for those listening, I know things are brutal. The world is brutal today, but I would advise against anyone who's curious of viewing any of that. Um, as journalists, we do have to endure that type of exposure, and that's why we do it, so we can share that in words or in pictures or in, in writing to our listeners, our readers, and our viewers so that you don't have to because it does leave an indelible mark that stays with you uh, the rest of your life. So I just... 
you know, we had discussions in the newsroom about you viewing this. Is it going to be newsworthy? Is it worth the scar it leaves on you so our listeners know what happened? But just I would advise against viewing it yourself. To be, I, I, I feel I like I need to say that because it's too <laughs> tempting sometimes when news is released for members of the public to say, well, let's see what this is and all about. And because you can't unsee it. Because you can't. Yeah, well, and I'm telling exactly you, as somebody who has seen stuff, James, you've seen, Travis, you've read and seen, we are, I have secondary PTSD because of the news business. So I, I think in addition to delivering this news today, I also want to offer, you know, somewhat of a PSA to our listeners. Don't expose yourself to something awful if you don't have to. Exactly. And it's it's funny. That's a term I've never heard. Uh, uh, secondary PTSD. And, and I want to back you up on that. It is absolutely true, especially after you've you spent a, a long career in this business and seeing those things. It is not something that I wanted to see. It is not something that uh, I, I recommend that anybody else sees. In fact, if you go to uh, my Northwest, uh, you can see that uh, the, the article that I wrote is posted there now. And the title of the article is I watched the Hamas video so you don't have to. Mm, yes, very true. Yeah. Secondary PTSD often suffered by 911 operators. It's those who are adjacent to the first responders who are still witness to uh, uh, the horror. So it is real. James, we appreciate you. Travis, did you have anything else you no, wanted to No, I just want to say thank yeah. you, James, for doing this for us. And please, I hope you take some time for yourself um, as well, because it, this, this, it is horrific to expose yourself to these things. No doubt. Thank you guys very much. And James will be joining other shows on uh, Cairo News Radio, Gian Ursula, um, to talk about this. So uh, all the other shows will handle it in, in their way as well. And again, MyNorthwest.com is where you can read James's story. This is Seattle's Morning News. The Grand Kiev Ballet takes the stage at Seattle's Paramount Theater this month in a performance of Snow White that promoters call elegant and mesmerizing. But two of the ballet's principal dancers have their own fascinating story to tell about getting their family out of war-torn Ukraine and keeping their ballet company on its toes. Cairo News Radio's Heather Bosch spoke with them. <laughs> Queen of Sylvia. Katerina Kuhar's laughter fills a dance studio where she rehearses for her upcoming performance of the ballet Snow White. Her husband and partner, Alex Doyanov, teasing her about her English. I will learn English. It's not their native language. Both are Ukrainian and dance with the Grand Kiev Ballet, where Stoyanov also serves as artistic director. They now call Seattle home, their path here starting in February of 2022. They were traveling and performing separately before reuniting in France. Uh, February 23, we meet each other in Menton, it's Nice. From there, they plan to fly home to their children in Ukraine. But Russia invaded just hours before their flight. Yes, and it was uh, the most uh, terrible uh, day our babysitter call us with the crying. The babysitter caring for their six-and-a-half-year-old daughter Anastasia was frantic. Russia was battling for control of Kiev, where the family lived. Flying out was not an option. And this is terrible because airport is closed. So so how did you get your daughter? Uh, oh, difficult. What followed were urgent phone calls to find a friend who had not yet evacuated who could get their daughter and babysitter out of the country. But time was running out. We, we call another, called another friend. Can you please, they say, you have just 30 minutes. You have 30 minutes. Just, just half an hour to reach that friend who would take them to the border with Poland. They did get there in time, but the roads were jammed with evacuees and danger. So the hours-long journey... Normally it's just six, six, seven hours. It took three days. Meantime, their 13-year-old son, Timur, was in another part of Ukraine where he'd been skiing with family friends. They were fleeing to the border with Hungary, much of the journey on foot. And they walk eight hours to cross and to meet us. Reunited with their children, the family now stays with friends in the Seattle area, where the war is keeping these dancers busier than ever. In Ukraine, my nickname is Crazy Producer. Uh, crazy manager. He explains yeah. the Grand Kiev Ballet Company is now based in Poland, but has several troops around the world helping dancers impacted by war. Because of the war, we like we stay bigger because all people, all dancers say, can you please take us for your company? The artists need you. They need yeah. the work. Yeah. yeah. Does being able to perform provide at least a little bit of an escape? 
when you're up on stage, does that help in some way? Yes, because art gives us uh, like wings. And uh, of course, for uh, all artists, very important to touch your heart. To bring joy, she says, to the audience. And for Stoyanov, there's an added significance here. I created my company, Grandki Ballet, in 2014, when Russia first time tried to take our territory. He's from Crimea, which Russia now occupies, with Grand Kiev Ballet not only thriving but expanding. This is our win in our cultural front. They take our house and try to take our country, but... Uh, this is your win in the culture wars. Yeah. When the couple takes the stage at Seattle's Paramount Theater, it will be at once a performance that is elegant, joyful, and a show of strength against those who invaded their native Ukraine. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. The Grand Kiev Ballet performs Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs at the Paramount Theater from December 20th to the 23rd. 848, that means it's Mickey time, and we're having some fun on this last segment of the show before we head into a weekend. Mickey Gum is here. We're going to share some of our Spotify-wrapped songs. So for those of you who don't use Spotify, why not? But uh, every year, <laughs> what they do is they take the data of what you listen to, the hours spent listening, the artists you listen to, uh, the hours you've lit, your favorite songs, and they present it to you in this cute little shareable package for social media, mm -hmm. and it's delightful to look back and go, oh, yeah, also I cringy. loved that song. Yeah, yeah also cringy. cringy. Okay. Well, okay. So do that's you know? why we're doing it, yeah. because some of us are really proud of our yeah. Spotify wrapped others, because mm. we have young kids yep. go, yeah. but what are you talking about? Frozen is not my favorite song. Exactly. Yeah. So here's the deal. Spotify wrapped has the receipts of 2023, and the winners are, believe it or not, Taylor Swift of course. with 26.1 billion streams. That's the song. Yep. Miss Americana in the Heartbreak Prince. Okay, but Bad Bunny's album, Venano Sinti, Summer Without You, is the is the number one album on uh, on Spotify. I have to you know that I haven't listened to a lot of Bad Bunny. Yeah, but apparently yeah. I should. You well, should. You okay. should. Okay. You should. Okay. And he's dating uh, one of the Jenners. Kendall Jenner? Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's okay. true. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, Travis, yours was problematic. I tried to put your list <laughs> yeah, together, and I'm like, what is I pretend going to on? be like G-rated dad, but really, yeah. I'm like all this explicit stuff. Yeah, but I, I did find this song, Kelly Clarkson, Mine. <laughs> Kelly is my girl. <laughs> I've been to more Kelly Clarkson, and this particular song. What is this? What is it for you? Like my heart is like soaring. Aww. I mean, her vocals are just phenomenal. And then you man and a dance beat, mm -hmm. and I'm like, that's me making dinner every day this year. I see it. Okay, <laughs> all right. Yeah. What? What? Uh, you've got Colleen's. You get yours. I do. Yeah. So Colleen, you're number one. Can anybody guess? It's Foo Fighters. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. It is rescued. Well, that isn't very climactic. Can we turn it no, down? No, yeah, sorry. I, I specifically told Charles to turn it down because it, it's a, you know, it's an intense turn it up, song. Turn it up, turn it up. <laughs> turn it up even more. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. She's jamming in the studio. But second to Foo Fighters is I was introduced to an artist from a new friend of mine, Don Diablo. It's an EDM house music. My favorite song is called Sail Away from Don Diablo. Is this it? Oh, wow. It's very chill. It's got that chill like vibe this. to it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I like chill, too. I mm -hmm. can rock it. And then number three, to even give us more whiplash on my favorite mm -hmm. songs, is Her by Megan the Stallion. Oh, break it down. This is get myself pumped up for the day. You're a fierce woman. You were like a genre dim. Look at that. were like quite literally old, yeah. the only 15 seconds of the song that we could play okay, yeah, listen, on so radio airwaves. Not a song my, for kids. My favorite song, Um. well, my number one. Uh, gra, 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 I buy gra. this. Mm -hmm. It's Ice Spice she Deli. And that's all I can play in the song. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then uh, and then number two. <laughs> yes. This makes Girl sense. This, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this makes sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, sure it does. That's 13-year-old Mickey right there. Yeah, all right, what is yours? Uh, so 
no surprise to anyone looking on the stream. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine was all country western stuff. <laughs> what? And uh, my top artists were Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. But my top song was this mm-hmm. song. I actually only discovered this last year, uh, which is near and dear to my heart and apparently Colleen's heart. It is All Yorn by Tyler Childers. I was preparing for my wedding all year. It was a real heartwarming song. Yeah. It was the perfect one I to me to set I love the song so much. I have the lyric tattooed on my arm. Yeah, that's yeah. That what? Really... And I've never heard of that song before. Yeah. I now want to hear it, though. I love I country. I'm a secret country fan. And okay. his newest release, which is very, mm-hmm. like, LGBTQ positive yeah. and it fear, like, it, he is a wonderful Appalachian artist. I got to tell you, I worked in country music for two years of my career in San Francisco, and that was one of the best times of my life. It's and and I, I do. I, I secretly, I am a country. Music me too. Me too. Me too. Yeah. yeah, I learned to love it in Spokane when in Rome. You One know? of my top artists is Dixon Dallas, and his whole thing, if you listen to TikTok at all this summer, is he like mm-hmm. used like gay love lyrics basically for traditional country twang song mm-hmm. to kind of make fun of like you know traditionally it's the the guy goes after the girl and the mm-hmm. love song, yeah. but he made it like about like two men, and I'm like, I love oh, that's songs. cool. They're a little body, so just be careful. Yeah, that's why I couldn't <laughs> but it's play like, any. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> we love, look how many genres we covered. Look how many artists. Never yuck somebody's yum, as yeah. you always say, Travis. Yep. Uh, whatever music you listen to, I hope it brings you joy and head into this weekend. Uh, Ted, what's yours? What, what's your favorite top artist? Do you know? Oh, my goodness. There's so many of them. I was a trumpet player, so I have to say Chicago. Chicago. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Wish Chicago, we had some Chicago's nice. to play. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.